You're listening to a Murder Crew Micro Brew. Please enjoy responsibly. Today on Homebrew Murder Crew, we will be touching once again on the atrocities against Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited. Hope for Wellness is a helpline that offers immediate help to all Indigenous people across Canada, and it is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They offer counseling and crisis intervention. If at any point you find yourself struggling with this episode, please feel free to call the toll-free helpline at one 855 242 3310. Or you can connect online and chat with them at www.hopeforwellness.ca. Typically, we want you to get uncomfortable when you hear our stories, but we understand how heavy these cases can be. If you need help, please reach out for it. Today's song is MMIW, The Hurting Song, from the MMIW documentary, written by Wakida Martin. This is Megan. I'm Christy. And I'm Auntie B. And we are Homebrew. Homebrew. Murder crew. We always struggle with that. Obviously coming to you remote because of how shitty that sounded and how off we were. Why did that sound so Why did Megan always so off? Why am I so off? You know, like a three-second leg. You always sound off to me. We're going to call you Leg and Megan. Megan. <laughs> Okay, hi ladies. How are you? Hi. I'm good. How are you guys? Oh, I'm not too bad. Megan? I'm good. Just hanging out here with Chester. Hi, Chester. Making out with your dog. I'm not making out with my dog. Not condoning reality here. He is just all about his mama right now. It's so cute. See guys, I see you're wearing your red like I am. Oh yes. Awesome job. I'm proud of you ladies. Yeah, happy Thursday. And what a Thursday it is. And um, I'm pretty sure Brittany's going to tell us why. Yeah, it's a it's a special day today, obviously, because it's a Thursday and we're releasing an, a bonus episode to you. Yeah. Um, so today is May 5th. And today is Red Dress Day. Ladies, do you know what Red Dress Day is? I have, like, some sort of an idea. Like, I remember seeing this before. But I'm not entirely privy to the importance and purpose of it. So I'm excited to to know more. I know that we hang a red dress on our door on this day uh, in support of the MMIW, which is Missing, Murdered, and Indigenous Women. Do you know why we hang up just a dress? No, I don't. You're going to learn that today. I can't wait. Yeah. What about you, Megan? What do you know about Red Dress Day? 
I just know that you hang the red dress in support of the murdered and missing Indigenous women as well. So I'm excited to learn more. Well, that is why I am here with you guys today and our lovely audience. Thank you for tuning in on this lovely Thursday. I am going to um, kind of start off this podcast. I really just want to bring awareness uh, to MMIW, which is Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, and Red Dress Day and what it is and what it means. I'm going to start off today essentially by answering the what is it? to all the questions. I'll go into Red Dress Day, MMIW, the National Inquiry. Uh, and then you guys, I actually took some time to look at the National Inquiry. So there's like a whole bunch of volumes. The first one's 700 and some pages, like it's a lot. Wow. But there is so much in there and it's fascinating to read. So a lot of the content that I have today is from there, uh, which obviously I will post the link in our link in our socials. You know what I'm trying to say. Our show notes. Uh, and then and once social. I have the questions answered, uh, what I'm going to do is I actually found a, a few pages within the National Inquiry where it was actual family members that part, partook or partake in whatever the proper <laughs> word is for that uh, in the National Inquiry. Because like I've said before, it was uh, 250 members of different areas, uh, different professions, Indigenous families that have been through traumas and everything uh, that compiled information for this inquiry. So I was reading what they um, contributed to this inquiry. What I've done is I've taken not one, not two, but actually three victims so that uh, I'm going to give you a quick little blurb on each. And then what I'm going to do right after the blurb is I'm going to read you what their family wrote in the National Inquiry. Okay. Let's start. So let's go into what is Red Dress Day? Red Dress Day is a day honoring missing and murdered Indigenous women and, and people. It's a day to raise awareness and to educate. Red Dress Day started as a red dress project established by Indigenous artist Jamie Black to focus on the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women across Canada and the United States in 2010. And ladies, what is Canada and the United States also known as? Turtle Island. Thank you. Now, that's what Red Dress Day means. So essentially what it is, ladies, you are right. You do hang up red dresses uh, in your windows, uh, in your doorways, but you can also wear red. Uh, a lot of Indigenous people will paint red hand feet, like handprints on their face. Mm -hmm. uh, that's such a beautiful statement. I, like, I'm obsessed with it, how hauntingly beautiful that statement is. It's so beautiful. Like, if you have an opportunity, friends, go on to Instagram, look up MMIW or No More Stolen Sisters, and some of the art and some of the photography is absolutely amazing. So now I'm going to go into what MMIW actually is and what the National Inquiry is. MMIWG, or Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, refers to the human rights crisis as some people would say, however, I like to refer to it as an epidemic of the high and disproportionate rates of violence and number of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in Canada. According to statistics, K-12 
Canada, between 2001 and 2015, homicide rates for Indigenous women were nearly six times higher than for non-Indigenous women. Wow. That's insane. That's a lot. I mean, like, when you think of six as a number as a whole, yeah, it doesn't sound like a lot, but as a percentage, like, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, it's it's sad and it make it breaks my heart. It was yeah. really hard to, as much as I'm proud and I am happy to bring this uh, to the table tonight and to educate not only you guys but myself and our audience as well. So back to um, the national inquiry. Prior to the release of this inquiry, any public data on MMIWG? totally oversimplifies and underrepresents the scale of this issue, yet still demonstrates a very complex pattern of violence against, against Indigenous women and girls who are often targeted because of their gender and Indigenous identity. Yep. On June 3rd, 2019, the final report uh, was finally released. The inquiry... So, I'm know, sorry, that is so recent. That's so oh, recent. Oh, I know. Yeah, it's when that's why I say finally, because yeah. it's like, how does this not exist? Yeah. In that report, the inquiry made a whopping 231 calls for action. going to go into victim number one now. Victim number one, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the site too that you can find this information on because CBC has a really good website. There are There's like 250 uh, different individuals, different profiles on there. I'll kind of get into that in a minute, but take a look at that report too uh, in our links on our socials because that's a phenomenal link. Victim number one, Werner May Smard Shibachi. I may or may not be saying that right. I apologize if I'm not. Verna, originally from Red Lake, Ontario, was a 50-year-old hardworking mother of five. She worked multiple jobs for her children so that they could have the best life possible. On September 16th, 2011, Verna died after falling out a sixth-floor window at the Regent Hotel on East Hastings Street, Vancouver, Canada. While her death was deemed suspicious, it would later be determined that there was no foul play, quote, unquote. The family, however, believed that she was thrown out the window by someone. Oh my God. Wanna know something even crazier? I mean, I, I, I do, but I think that maybe I don't. There <laughs> yes, I do. Another case, you guys, eerily similar to Verna's. Ashley Matashkunich. Mm -hmm. I hope I'm saying that one right. She died in the exact same way, almost exactly one year earlier. Wow, really? Weird. That is Verna's story. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go, I'm going to read to you from the National Inquiry. Uh, one of uh, Verna's family members actually, like I was stating, spoke to the inquiry. This is page 29 from it, if anybody is going to go back and look. Verna May Samard 
Shibachi was born to Charles and Tina Samard in Red Lake, Ontario. Together, they raised their children, Cecile, Verna, and Mitchell. She was born into a warm and loving family. As a child, she was happy, kind, and full of spirit. Her father affectionately called her Fawn for her gentle nature. Oh, that is so sweet. Her mother died when Verna was a very young age. Her father was grief-stricken. Children's Aid Society, or CAS, took the children and placed them in a Mennonite home in Red Lake. They were placed in foster homes where physical and sexual abuse occurred. Verna married, but it did not last long. She raised her children, but they were taken into CAS. To compound that loss, her oldest son died. Verna became a grandmother, and Verna doted, cared for, loved, and lived for her granddaughter. Verna's life was difficult and tragic as she was unable to deal with her traumatic history, the grief and loss of her mother, the tragic death of her father, the loss of her brother, and the loss of her oldest son. We believe these factors contributed to her high-risk lifestyle, which included alcohol, drug addiction, multiple partners, and intimate partner violence, which resulted ultimately in her death. Verna had allegedly fallen from a sixth-floor window of Vancouver's Regent Hotel on Hastings Street. The circumstances surrounding her death remain suspicious, unsolved, but ruled, quote-unquote, no foul play by Vancouver City Police. This case can be reopened pending any new information brought forward by any person. We as a family believe the intimate partner violence contributed to her death. We believe she was thrown out the window. At the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls hearing in Thunder Bay, Ontario in December of 2017, the family put forward several recommendations for change, including on issues such as the investigative process of the Vancouver City Police, police reports, corridor reports, police response and protocols, credible witnesses, and a preponderance of evidence based on environment. As well, the family had specific recommendations on child welfare, domestic violence, intimate partner violence resulting in death, and the need for holistic healing strategies. We honor the memory of Verna and seek justice we look to the National Inquiry to advocate for and advance the recommendations for women like Verna. These recommendations cannot be downplayed, ignored, or shelved. When the recommendations are implemented, we avert suffering, justice can be served, and her spirit can rest. Miggywetch, which means thank you. Ooh, it's a lot, hey guys? Yes. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Now I bring you victim number two. And victim two is Hillary Brownell. She is 16 years old, okay? So Hillary, 16, was from the... I'm going to really attempt to say this, but I'm probably not going to say it right. Egonopetete, First Nation, <laughs> New Brunswick... Hillary disappeared after attending a house party on September 5th, 2009. Her body would be found two months later in a wooded area near an old firing range. 
police would find her because her killer, aka her cousin, yeah, Curtis Bunnell, led them to the spot that he had buried her. And, and he buried her at this old firing range because he was hoping to avoid detection. Like, I don't know where the thought process is. That's weird. This was uh, after he had picked her up while she was walking home from that house party that I was telling about. And during that car ride, Curtis would sexually assault her and ultimately murder her. Curtis was charged and convicted of first-degree murder in December of 2009. I'm now going to go back to the National... How awful, like, you trust, you you find somebody that you trust, that you know as family, and you trust them to, to bring you to safety and take you home safely. And that's that's the outcome. That's absolutely heartbreaking and disgusting. That's devastating. I'm grateful that I found a case that solved. Yes. I guess silver linings. But no, it's it's devastating. And you know, it's indigenous violence against indigenous. And yeah. you know, our lives are hard enough without us doing violence to each other. Yeah. So I'm gonna bring us back to the National Inquiry now, and we're gonna go to page 28 where Pamela Filler talks about her daughter. Fillier, sorry, Pamela Fillier. She states, my daughter Hillary went missing on September 15th, 2009. When I went to the police, they assumed she was out partying and did not look for her. My community ended up looking for her. We called the media and when the media got involved and it blew up on television, that's when the police started looking for her. When my daughter was found, it was discovered that her first cousin had murdered her. He had previously been to jail for raping the mother of his children. He was let out of jail, even though his file said he was at high risk for of reoffending. And now I don't have my little girl. Oh my God, that's fucked. The National Inquiry has been a healing process for me. I felt very alone, but when I go to the hearings and to the meetings with an FAC, which is the National Family Advisory Circle, I don't feel so alone. The person next to you knows how you feel because they've been there in a sense. No two stories are the same, but there is always something that is the same that you can identify with. I will stay in contact with these women because they really feel like my family. My hope for the final report is that it will raise awareness about how much racism still exists in Canada. I also hope for tougher laws for rapists, pedophiles, and murderers. My daughter's murderer received a sentence of 25 years in prison, but after 13 years, he will qualify for day passes. He was also previously charged in a number of violent cases. I fear for the safety of women and girls in his community because he showed no remorse for what he did to my daughter, and I fear he will re-offend. Something else I would like to see come of the final report would be more safe spaces for children. My dream would be to create the Hillary House, a safe haven where children from the community could play or have a place to stay the night. I would like for it to include an arcade room and a dance floor. There are no existing houses of this kind on reserves, and I believe that it would be a wonderful initiative to keep our kids safe. Every reserve should have a Hillary house. Nick is on, Nick is on. 
Victim number three is Tamara Lynn Chipman. So Tamara Chipman, 22, was a mother to one young boy when she vanished from an area near Prince Rupert, British Columbia, Canada, on September 21st, 2005, and she has never been found. When Tamara went missing, volunteers from the Maurice Town First Nation, Tamara's home community, uh, they organized the search for her. Her family still doesn't know to this day if authorities have ever really conducted any searches of their own. She was last seen hitchhiking near an industrial park, and little else is known about her disappearance other than, of course, that she disappeared in 2005, and it was along the Highway 16, which, ladies, is commonly referred to as the Highway, the highway of Tears. Yes, so Project Panna, uh, a task force dedicated to unsolved murders with links to the Highway of Tears, is currently investigating her missing persons case. Okay. Okay. One more time here, I am going to go to the National Inquiry, and I want to read you Tamara's auntie uh, did a write-up in there called Vanish. It's on page 23 of the National Inquiry. Tamara Lynn Chipman stole her daddy's heart from the moment she was born. Even her mom knew she would be a daddy's girl forever. When Tamara lost her grandpa, her favorite person in the world, she clung to her daddy and became his little shadow. Tamara loved fishing boats, fast cars, and dogs. She was an adventurer. She grew into a tall, lanky, charming, beautiful young lady with a smile that would brighten anybody's day. From daddy's little tomboy to a young mother at age 19, forever bonded with her son. She was never afraid of anything and lived life to the fullest. Then one day, out of the blue, something out of the ordinary happened. There were no more phone calls, no knock on the door, no cheery hello, no more, hey daddy, what we gonna do today? All of the sudden, our world came crashing down. Tamara had vanished. Days turned into weeks, a month, and then into years. She disappeared on September 21st, 2005, from the northernmost tip of the Highway of Tears in British Columbia. Our family conducted search parties through the mountains, along the railroad tracks, in ditches and culverts, and tread through the back alleys of communities where angels wouldn't dare tread. We searched local, provincial, national, and international waters for our baby girl, only to realize that there were so many more missing like her. The internal flame will continue to burn in hopes that someday soon she will bounce in that door and say, hey, daddy, what are we going to do today? We wonder, is she warm? Is she safe? Is she alive? And is she being held against her will? Is she being raped or is she being tortured? Is she being bought or sold? What happened to her? Is she dead? Somewhere out there, someone knows something. We pray that someday they will come forward and tell us the truth. This thought runs through the minds of all the families of our missing loved ones, the thousands of us who wake up to this nightmare every single day. Of all the hurtful experiences associated with the vanishing of a loved one, one of the most is the racism displayed when our First Nations loved ones disappear. 
We hear things like, I heard she was just a party animal, or was she wanted by the cops? Or the worst of all, that she lived a quote-unquote high-lift lifestyle. These labels have taught mainstream society that all our women and girls are just that, prostitutes, addicts, and hitchhikers, and therefore not worthy of care or effort. This is not true. Tamara is loved now and forever. The government of Canada as a whole has the responsibility of ensuring every citizen is protected by the laws of the land. All people living in Canada have the responsibility to live in peace and with respect for basic human rights, including safety and justice. It is time for justice, closure, accountability, equality, and true reconciliation. It is time to end violence against Indigenous women, girls, and two SLGBTQQIA people. What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. Wow. What an impactful statement. Right? That was powerful. Wow. Um, can we, I know that we mentioned this in, another, in a previous episode, but can we refresh the memories of our audience on what... Absolutely. The longer version of MMIW is? That is two-spirit, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, and asexual people. Oh, you guys, I got emotional there. I know. know. Honestly, like, I heard that in your, that was impactful, not only just on paper, but because you were reading it from a very emotional place. That was beautiful. Like, and I appreciate yeah. that you did that, that you went there because I know that yeah. that must have been hard on you. Oh, it was. It felt really good to get it out now, though. Yeah. These cases, these women are only three among a disturbing amount that have finally started being recorded for all of history to finally see. There is a great, like I mentioned before, CBC website that you can check out. This is from, part of this is from that as well. Uh, but this is three out of 250 from that page alone, you guys. Like, there's like, so many. All of these lost women, that. girls, and two-spirit people were loved. They had family, and they were considered sacred to their families. Only to be taken, abused, and in a lot of cases, murdered for simply being feminine and or indigenous. We also have an awful habit in society of victim blaming, especially in these cases, a lot of cases uh, involving females, but especially with indigenous females, uh, women are way too often blamed for the violence they experience. I think we've all kind of witnessed this ourselves and lived through uh, being questioned about something that's happened to us. Uh They have been referred to as prostitutes and drug addicts. And then there's always the polite terminology, which is racially coded. Uh, For example, the term at risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's always, there's ways of people washing their hands as if to say, well, that has really nothing to do with us. They've caused their own disappearances. They've contributed to their own disappearances, rapes, murders. They live, they live a high-risk lifestyle. Yeah, and it's all by their own personal behaviors, by the way that they are dressed, by what they are, what they are, we're doing. Which, basically, what you're saying is 
she was asking for it. Exactly. And, and yeah. that's what victim blaming is. And it needs to stop because these, as women, we have just as much right to do whatever we want. But at the, but at the end of the day, we shouldn't be discriminated against because we're women and indigenous women because they're of a different ethnicity. I, I just, I don't understand it. Many because, people. You, because, you know, through colonization, the indigenous culture was just like stripped from them. They called indigenous people savages they were the savages the 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 people colonizing were the savages you're taking children from families and then now you're contributing to all this generational trauma and unfortunately it's so hard to get out of that because there is always a stigma of indigenous people look at you know if you're ever in a position to hire people at a job if you were to receive a resume from somebody indigenous, how often did you, and I'm, I'm just asking my, like our audience in general, how often have you taken, like given that a second look, you know, or how often did you brush it aside based on what they looked like, the color of their skin, their background, their ethnicity, you know, there are wonderful indigenous people out there who are doing wonderful things or who are just trying to overcome and, and repair from generation to generation to generation to generation what was done to them. But Trying to be the cycle breaker. Exactly. But unfortunately, they're unfairly blamed or judged or, you know, preconceived notions about who they are and what they're capable of. And yeah. it's just heartbreaking. Well, many people don't see the system as violent, but in fact, MMIW is a result of imposed poverty, legal and individual racism, discrimination, and patriarchy. Yeah. Ladies, that is why today, Thursday, May 5th, is Red Dress Day. We hang red dresses in our doorways and in our windows. We wear red and we honor these women who may be gone, but damn it, they are not forgotten. We become their advocates and we become their voices. A decolonizing mindset requires people to consciously and critically question the legitimacy of the colonizer and reflect on the ways we have been influenced by colonialism. According to expert an expert in indigenous research mythologies, Margaret Kovach, Uh, The purpose of decolonization is to create space in everyday life, research, academia, and society for an Indigenous perspective without its being neglected, shunted aside, mocked, or dismissed. It is the responsibility of all of us to be mindful and understanding, show empathy for people, especially those who may be struggling more than you, help, don't hate in this world today. It really is as easy as listening to people, letting them vent about what's going on in their lives. I know uh, because I, I struggle with my own mental health and being an Indigenous woman, I have lived in fear of becoming a statistic, especially living in YYC these days, you guys, and working oh down alone. It's yeah. so fucking scary out there. Oh, yeah. So I bring these cases here and the education, because I hope one day that if I have a daughter of my own, she can love herself for who she is, practice traditions that I missed out on as a kid, and maybe, 
just maybe she won't have to live every single day with the same fears. Well, thank you so much, Brittany. That was, um, that was amazing. Thank you for enlightening. Yeah. And for teaching us what red dress day is all about. Um, to our listeners, I hope that this has inspired you to maybe give a, a second look into, into all of this and everything that Brittany shared. And like, again, links are in the show notes and Hey, if you're wearing red today, or if you hang a red dress on your door in a tree, wherever that may be, why don't you just take a quick picture and share it to our socials? We would love that. Yeah. Either share it to our socials or uh, even tag us in it too. Right. If you've been on our socials at all over the uh, National Week of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, we've got cases galore on there as well that you can go take a look at. Just quick little 30-second reads. And if you want to share a photo or if you have any more questions about um, the MMIW, the Red Dress Day, et cetera, or anything that Brittany brought to us today, um, please feel free to email us. You can send us the photos at homebrewmurdercrew at gmail.com. You can also find us on our show- socials. We are on Instagram at homebrewmurdercrew. We're on TikTok at homebrewmurdercrew. And we're at face on Facebook at homebrewmurdercrew. <laughs> Thank you so much, Brittany. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye. 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 Until next time. Hey, hey.